Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Glad to have you on here. I, uh, yeah, that's great. I initially initially stumbled upon the challenges that you were doing. Like that was that was mm. what really fascinated me about what you were doing. I know this was kind of a while ago, but the first one that it came up to was where you spent a year without speaking English, and I think you traveled around like Spain. I can already tell you, yeah. like, this, right. this no, must have yeah, been a while ago, right? <laughs> well, yeah, it was seven years ago. So it's it's weird because, yeah. like, even when I was writing the book Ultra Learning, which you can you can see in the back corner here, That's um, right. yeah. when I was writing it, it was already like the these projects had been a while. So it's a little funny sometimes to come on these podcasts because I'm also talking mm. about things that I did well now. Yeah, like a decade ago, like the MIT challenge was a decade ago. We'll probably get into that as well. But yeah, the yeah. Year Without English, this is a project I did with a good friend, that. And uh, we went to four countries, Spain, Brazil, China, and South Korea to learn uh, Spanish, Portuguese, uh, Mandarin, Chinese, and uh, Korean. And the sort of gimmick of the project, as it were, were like, when we landed in the country, we were going to try as much as possible to not speak English, either to each other or to anyone we'd meet. And so obviously, that's a bit of an extreme constraint. Um, very few people do that. But right. the reasoning behind it was that uh, a few years before that, I had gone on exchange to France uh, as a university student. And I was really gung-ho about learning French. But what happened is that when you get there and you don't already speak French, well, you make a bunch of English-speaking friends. And then that just mm. becomes this barrier for you to actually using it. So it feels weird because like you're in the country that speaks the language, immersion should be easy, but you've, you've sort of shot yourself in the foot because all these people around you speak to you in English and they know your mm -hmm. French is bad and they don't really want to speak to you in French. So the, the sort of um, extreme, extremeness of this rule was, was based around that principle that if you could start from the beginning with a kind of an environment where like, yeah, your Spanish or Chinese is not good, but it's enough that you can sort of have friends and they're used to communicating with you, then you would just get a lot more practice. And I think that that really bared out in that project that like uh, Spain was, I would say, the most unequivocally successful of that. Like we felt really like, oh, wow, yeah, we mm. can chat with people. We're going on dates. We have friends. We are very much living ordinary life. Now, I wouldn't say that our Spanish was like, you know, delivering articulate university lecture worthy. But from what most people want to learn a language for, which is to communicate and use the language with people who can't speak English, then it was a success. Um, the Asian countries are harder. Uh, Chinese and Korean are definitely mm -hmm. harder than, um, than Spanish and Portuguese were. But the same principle applied. I think, you know, if I had the magic of uh, perfect 
you know, clairvoyance and I could, could have seen exactly how things would have gone. I think probably spending longer would have been good in those places. So, you know, like we did three months in each three months, I think was fine for Spain. Um, but if I were to give someone advice who wanted to do something similar, I would say, you know what, you can do the same approach, but maybe invest like six to nine months if you were going to do, or just go one place for like a year or something. (laughs) Don't, don't try to do four in a year. Uh, And you can probably get uh, like a similar distance if you're, if you're committed to it. Well, the whole, like the whole thing you guys were trying to, I guess, accomplish was that they'll, the, the, what will shock people is that you'll have like four languages in four different places. If you just did one language for the whole year, it's probably the most effective way to do it, but it may not be the most attention grabbing or the most well, like. It's, to be clear, though, like I know there is a little bit of self promotional angle in all of that, but um, the the reason that we did it this way was also that the the project wasn't even really a learning project to begin with. Just my friend was going to take a year off to travel. I wrote online. I was also like, ah, let's travel together. We're you know we're already roommates. That would be fun. I you know, more fun than traveling by yourself. So the idea was a world trip to begin with. Like mm. I had a friend who did a world trip. The language learning thing kind of came after because I was like, well, you know, I just did this MIT challenge project. I had a friend, Benny Lewis, who was doing these sort of language learning things. I tried to learn French. So I was already kind of in that space and, and he sort of seemed on board for it. Um, but like, again, the, if I, if I think to, to it, the goal wasn't like, okay, how do I, you know, optimize my linguistic performance over this year? It was like, well, we want to do a trip and what could we do that would be fun and cool. And, and so I think the, yeah, the, the other thing too, is that for a lot of countries, I mean, it's not a huge barrier, but three months is the typical length of a tourist visa. So that is also right. the reason behind, like you can, as a, as a Canadian, well, I'm a Canadian. I'm pretty sure it's the same for Americans. You can go to European countries for three months and then you got to leave. Yeah. So you have to get a different visa and it's, it's just a little bit of a different process. If you were like, no, 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 I want to stay there for a year. So, I mean, whatever you're doing, I think there's people who are in situations in life where they will have a chance to go to another country or they'll have a chance to learn a language and they're all going to be unique. So you might be teaching English in Thailand. You might be going on exchange in university. You might even just be like, you know, we're just going to go for a trip for two, three weeks. So obviously all those situations are going to be very different. And I think um, just figuring out what's the right way to approach it for you is going to just vary depending on your own constraints. In some ways, was it a bit easier for you to go to certain countries where they didn't speak a lot of English? Like, for example, like I spent some time in Rio de Janeiro Mm. and I felt learning Portuguese there was a lot easier versus Sao Paulo, where everyone speaks pretty good English because it's like a business state or business. And whereas Rio, even if I didn't speak Portuguese, they wouldn't speak back English to me because they just didn't know enough English Mm. to speak back. So we would just end up... It's very broken Portuguese, but, yeah, yeah. you know, we didn't really get anywhere, but, you know, at least they would continue to speak back to me in Portuguese. There wasn't any optionality. Yeah. So I think you're right. I think that does play into it, but maybe not as much as I think people often think it does. So, so one of the things that really surprised me was how, um, how little pushback we got in Spain um, huh. that, you know, I figured a European country, uh, you know, like from my experience being in France, for instance, I often found, and part of that is just that the getting a good French accent is hard. And yeah. there's often a, a kind of for like, like what you there's need to, definitely, what you, need you, know, hit, you know, I, and I, and I, I feel very self-aware saying this because the people who have the highest bar 
um, I would say are, are largely English speakers. Like you have to have near perfect English for English speakers to be impressed with your English. So it, it really is, it, you know, I'm, I am aware of that, but, but I was a little worried that we'd go to Spain. There'd be a lot of people who are young people like our age um, who speak English really well. And we just wouldn't get anywhere because it would just be this constant pushback of like, why are you doing this? And that didn't happen at all. I was, yeah. I was surprised at how bad our Spanish could be and Spanish people would still prefer to speak to us in Spanish than English. Interesting. Um, uh, Brazil was interesting because there most people don't speak English, but there was a definite subsegment. We were in Florianopolis, which is in the south, and there was definitely a subsegment that were like really keen to practice their English, and they didn't have a lot of opportunities. There weren't a lot right. of Americans who came there. Lots of uh, like Argentinians and you know, people from um, Spanish speaking countries there. But so th there would be those people who were like, oh, now's my chance to practice English. And the rule that we had was never like forcing other people to speak to us. It was just kind of like, we would just explain, yeah, we're trying to speak Portuguese. We're going to speak Portuguese. So if they want to speak English, we speak Portuguese. That's fine. Like, yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to twist anyone's arm over it. Um, China was, um, other than a very, very small strata of college educated people, we were also in Kunming. So we were not in Beijing, Shanghai, like one of those places. Um, other than this very small strata of college educated people who are like fairly young, no one spoke any English, like zero. Mm -hmm. Like there was, if you, we, when we, and that actually was a problem in a few places because when we got there, um, there was some comedic kind of situations where we arrive and we had gotten this like Airbnb wasn't that into the Chinese market at that point. And so we were using yeah, yeah. this Chinese version of Airbnb. Uh, so it's, it's aimed to domestic tourists, not to foreigners. And we managed to yeah. rent in a, a place through this and we're trying to get into our Airbnb. And, uh, <laughs> I remember um, I, we get there, we stay at a hotel the first night and I have to call this woman on the phone and I have like very limited Mandarin and I'm kind of just trying to like explain, you know, yeah, yeah. we're here for the apartment. Um, can you meet us there? Right. And so we go to the apartment and of course there's no one there. Cause like, I don't know, she probably thought it was like a crank call or something <laughs> like this. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I remember we're like, I'm talking to the security guy in Mandarin being like, can you call this number? This is like our landlord. Can you call them? And they're just like, just, and, and I remember my friend that running around, like, cause we're, we're locked outside. We've got our suitcases. We're jet lagged, you know, like we, we do try to maintain this no English rule, but at the same time, we're like, okay, let's get into the apartment. Yeah, and then yeah, we can yeah, worry about it a little bit. And he's, he's running around trying to find someone who maybe speaks English, who could, like, we can just explain, we need you to call this person, just tell them we're here. And uh, he's running around. And I remember he was saying like, talk, going to be like, you know, English to like a few people. And uh, they were just sort of like, just kind of like laughing, like, oh man, buddy, you're screwed right now. <laughs> it's like, and, um, and so we did actually manage to like find someone and, and make it work. And it all, it all worked. I mean, yeah, the first few days of arrival were often a little bumpy, but um, the, yeah, the being in China, not that many people spoke English. Korea, lots of people spoke English, at least in Seoul, younger mm. people. But, um, you know, I think, I think the, the main thing is, you know, while I'm going on this big tangent of travel stories, I think the main thing is just if you have the intention to I'm going like basically even just learning 
to say like, I have a project, I want to speak only this language when I'm here to learn it. People are usually pretty sympathetic and they understand it. And I think that is the main factor um, that, you know, yeah, some people speaking English and they're going to push it or other people are, are not. But I think mostly it's just that stage setting of like, why are you doing this? Cause you're whatever Spanish, French, Chinese mm. isn't very good. You explain it. And I think most people are pretty sympathetic. I think at least uh, native speakers tend to be pretty sympathetic. Sometimes you get pushed back from the other foreigners. Cause they're like, who do you think you are? You know, this kind of thing, but, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, the yeah. native speakers are usually pretty encouraging. Cause they're kind of like, Oh, that's great. Yeah. You should do that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's honestly e- easier often to do that because what I find that's really difficult is if you meet someone in their native language, let's say you and I meet in English yeah. and we've known each other for like a couple of months, uh, you know, let's say a mm-hmm. year and all of a sudden we decide to speak a different language, there's this like psychological barrier that happens where it just feels weird. So even if you want to practice with someone that you know and they're, let, they're native in a certain language, because you already have this connection in English, let's say, mm-hmm. I find that like it's a little bit difficult to have that, to just switch, you know, to just to have that on, on and off switch where both people mutually agree to that. So it's good that you're approaching that upfront with, you know, the language that you're trying yeah. to learn. And I mean, that's true of like my friend and I too, that it, there was a definite, like, I think shifting to not your typical language of communication has a lot of barriers because most of the time you're not like you're communicating to communicate, right? You're not communicating yeah. to practice your language ability. You're, you're doing it because, you know, you want to go eat some food or you want to like, ask for directions or you're, you know, just like haggling over rent or something like you're not, you're, you have a goal that's not practicing in that moment. And so I think that, um, I think that the main difficulty of learning languages, uh, is that as adults, you have excellent coping mechanisms for getting what you want done without having to learn the language. So Mm -hmm. I think that is the major difficulty is that, uh, you know, you can go to most countries and not learn the language. Like you can find ways to cope without learning the language. And um, so I think the idea that, well, you know, you want to learn another language, you just go to Korea or France or something, and you'll just learn it is just false because it's surprise. Like it is very easy in the short term to avoid learning it. Um, Obviously it makes difficulties in the long term, but I think um, that's the, that's the fundamental, fundamental barrier. So you really do have to be, I think a little strict with yourself if if you want to take advantage of that. um, Yeah. Yeah. That opportunity. Especially if you work online where this idea Mm -hmm. of living in a different, even across the world feels the exact same as if you were in your own bedroom, because you are at the end of the day, you're going to be working at home. You're going to be, you know, if you're a digital nomad working nine, 10 hours a day and, you may go to a coffee shop here and there, but yeah, it's just, it's, uh, it doesn't mean necessarily that you have this huge advantage if you don't take, you know, if you don't leverage it, if you don't really take advantage of it. Oh, you know, it blew me away how many people we met um, that had been living in, especially Asian countries, but I would say even also Europe and, and these places, oh, yeah. they've been living there for years, some cases, mm. decades. And like, 
their ability with that language was just like frighteningly bad. Like, like yeah. a couple weeks would have been enough to be better than them. And, it, <laughs> and it's not, it's not, I'm not saying that as a kind of like condescending, you know, Oh, these, you know, idiots, but just think of how hard it is to live. Like, especially like in like, you know, not major cities in China, if you don't speak any Mandarin, you are so cut off from everything. Like you can't participate in any of the regular life. There's very Mm. few, you know, foreigners there. You just basically are in this tiny little bubble that speaks English and that's where you have to live. That's your little prison that you've made for yourself there. So I just feel like, you know, I feel bad for people who get stuck in that situation because, um, you know, and, and whatever it is, you're, you're, you're just kind of stuck there. And so I think, uh, you know, and admittedly, I'm not sure what your audience is uh, right now, but I feel like uh, sometimes when I talk about language learning, I am also very aware that, you know, especially these days with travel being so restricted that, uh, um, you know, a lot of people who are learning a language are not just in the, well, I'm just going to go jet off to wherever to go learn a language. Sure. You know, I think that the primary reason people are learning languages is often, often people are wanting to learn English, but they, you know, I have to go there to work or I have to do, you know, I have to live my life and I have these other constraints. And so I'm very aware of that. But I think the key is that if you can make some investments in it early enough, you know, especially building some friendships, building some of those things, then it, it tends to be a reinforcing cycle. So you know, even the people are like, well, you know, I just want to get there and just get settled or I want to just, you know, deal with whatever the situation, creating that environment at the beginning, yeah. I think can be really helpful. I mean, for the single girls and guys out there, can, can we admit that the easiest, probably the most effective way is just to date someone that speaks that other language and well, unless as they're speaking as, to you in English all the time. I mean, exactly. That's, ways, what, right? that's it. Right. So as long as they're not <laughs> Uh, speak because I, I dated a girl in Mexico City yeah. and she didn't speak for three months and she didn't speak a word of English. Well, there and you go. that helps, right? Like, we would never fight, <laughs> there'd be a certain tipping point, and then we'd just yeah. be like, All right, I guess none of us really know what we're talking about at this point, so <laughs> we just made up, and you know, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think the the whole dating, like, we were uh, single when we were did, went on this trip too, so there, there was a sort of dating yeah. aspect to it, but I will say that, like you know, like for most places, if you were just, Oh, I, I just wanted to like, someone made some comment. We were, I was on some podcast and they made some comment like, Oh, we did that to like date girls or something. It's like, no, the easiest way to date girls would have been like, lots of people want to practice their English. It would have been no effort to just be yeah. like, I'm going to speak yeah, English. Yeah. No, we actually like cared about the culture and the language. And, and exactly. the thing too, is that when you learn, you have to get very comfortable sounding um, dumber than you actually are when you start learning another language and that can be difficult for people because it is very natural. We, we judge people by their level of articulateness as, as a proxy for their intelligence. And so that's true in North America where people come from other countries and they don't speak English very well and just very often racistly assume that these people aren't very intelligent, even though, you know, they've got a PhD in chemistry or whatever from back home, just because they're not as articulate. And so that situation is reversed when you go somewhere. So I I can remember a situation when I was in um, Spain and I I had been sort of dating this girl and uh, we'd been only speaking in Spanish and she'd been learning some English. So she did know English and she was telling me about how she's learning English and stuff, but we were only ever speaking in Spanish. She was never practicing with me. And then on like, it was like the last day I was leaving and she, she was sort of like, you know, well, you should like speak a little English. I've never heard you speaking English before. And I started speaking English and she's like, 
oh my God, your English is so good. And it's like, yeah, you know, I'm not like, <laughs> like okay, let's not break up stuff. anymore. Yeah, no, no, no. But it was, it was just kind of, she was just sort of like, oh, wow. You know, like I, like not, she didn't actually say this, but in my head, it was kind of like, oh, I've been thinking you're this idiot this whole time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so you have to be very comfortable with, um, with that kind of, uh, that handicap that you, you're going to yeah. be talking, you're going to be interacting with people and you are going to be in situations where you don't know what's going on and you don't know what, yeah. And so to me, that was kind of like, you just have to lean into it. That, that that's just the experience is that the experience is being in this challenging environment and you have to kind of let go of your own ego of like needing to be seen in a certain way. But I mean, obviously that can be hard. That can definitely be hard. I think if you are like working in that place and so people are judging your professional competency through that lens or, mm-hmm. you know, you want to stay there long-term. And so you're, you know, I, I admit that, that that can be difficult, but I think that that sort of, psychological barrier to like, I don't want to look stupid is a major reason people don't do this because if you were fine looking stupid, then like, yeah, anyone can like try to speak another language, you know, it's just making yep. noise with your lips. It, it's yep. the self-consciousness about it that, that holds people back. Totally. Yeah. And learning languages because of that is so difficult because it's not like a solo activity that you can do. Yep. You can at a certain, to a certain point, maybe you go from like zero knowledge, you can use Duolingo and you get to like a decent level but like, you got to speak it. That's the whole purpose yeah. of languages. And it's not like just going to the gym, you know, which is like yeah. a solo I mean, activity. I mean, I, I will say this, like if your whole, whole goal was to like watch Japanese movies, let's say, then yeah, like you, you could probably just learn it just by watching it. Or if you only wanted to read yeah. like ancient Greek literature, then yeah. But I just think the idea is that the, if, if the goal was to have conversations at some point, you're going to have to have conversations. And in my opinion, most people wait way too long. And it's because of that fundamental reason that they just, well, I'm not able to say the things that I'm able to say in English. Well, yeah, of course you're not, you know, Mm. but you may never get to the point where you're able to say all the things that you can say in your native language equally fluently. So the people that tend to do well in another language, I think kind of embrace this, you know, they just, they're comfortable looking not so good at it. They're comfortable just sort of, you know, yeah, I know I'm bad at this, but like, you know, you, you just kind of have to have some humor in yourself and like, yeah, I'm going to make mistakes. And there's going to be that time where I say something and everyone's laughing at me because I said the wrong thing. And that's yeah. stupid in that language. I, I had, um, I'm still bad at it, but I remember in French, uh, I got like some chuckles because there's the coup, which means neck and cue, which means ass. And I kept saying <laughs> ass instead of neck or one or the other. And uh, I kept getting a lot of laughs about that. There, there's a lot of situations where I was doing things like that. Chinese, especially because of all the tones of saying that yeah. wrong. Often you're like, yeah, no, no, yeah, no, yeah. you're, you're, yeah, you're not saying this, you're saying this. And you know, so I think you just have to, you just have to have a sense of humor about it and enjoy it. And I think if you can do that, uh, you can actually progress a lot more rapidly. So I feel like the people who tend to progress in learning languages are not necessarily the people who are just the smartest, but the people that, you know, do have that kind of self-confidence and that ability to just sort of like, all right, whatever, I'll just go do this. And then, you know, right. six months later, they're actually speaking pretty well because they've been putting sure. themselves in all these situations. Yeah. Yeah. So that extroversion that you have in your, in, in just yourself, whatever language you speak, it can kind of transfer over to helping you learn new languages in, in the speaking aspect. At least. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't, you don't have to be an extrovert. I think uh, like, I don't see myself as being particularly extroverted. I think I'm probably pretty much in the middle, but I mean, I spend a lot of time reading books. I'm not like, you know, I got to go to every party. Like I, I think a lot of people who know me from my, you know, <laughs> 
Canadian English language persona would not describe me as being this wild extrovert. But when I was traveling, that was the kind of critique I got. Oh, well, this only works for extroverts. And it's like, no, 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 you have to have some guts. You have to have some like, okay, I have to overcome my shyness and I have to like try to speak. But a lot of what it is, is like, you can still have like your same three, four friends and just hang out with them all the time. Like you don't have to be this kind of I'm in the center of the tension at the party. You know what I mean? It just, it's just about interacting. So you have to find things that you're comfortable with. But, you know, I had a, I had a conversation with someone who was trying to learn Chinese and they were trying to set themselves the goal of like going up to strangers and having conversations with strangers. And to me, I was thinking, well, do you do that in English? Because if you don't, then like, I mean, it's not that it's bad to have conversations with strangers, but often those conversations are somewhat superficial. They're like, you know, where's this? How are you doing? It's really short. Whereas if you know someone and you're having conversations with them for like hours, then yeah, obviously it's going to be deeper and more substantial and and whatnot. And so the idea there, I think, is just sometimes people associate, well, like, what is the scariest possible thing for me, which would be approaching strangers and making that the goal. But I don't think the goal is necessarily just to, you know, get on stage and deliver like a monologue or, you know, go in a play or something. If you don't do those, if you don't like doing those things in English, I don't think you need to in another language. I think it's just, can you communicate? Can you do the things that you would do in English in this Mm -hmm. language? Can you you know, hang out with friends. Like if, and if you're the kind of like quiet dinner party with three people kind of person, then you can be that person in, in another language too. Uh, so I, I don't think that there is necessarily an extrovert advantage, but I do think you need to have this kind of letting go of your ego and being like, okay, not being super articulate and smart, sure. and having people kind of chuckle at you because you don't know anything and just enjoying that, enjoying that experience yeah. of, you yeah. know, uh, of having the childlike naivete about things and saying the wrong words and having people like, oh, come on now, you're not saying that right. And like, okay, yeah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a cool experience. Yeah. Because if you're not like that in, let's say in your current language or just yeah. in your regular life, embracing that in the other language and knowing that you're supposed to be kind of like made yeah. fun of and you're supposed yeah. to like laugh at yourself that also transfers over to your regular life right like yeah. being able to have a sense more sense of humor and you know being able to accept failure and mistakes like it, it is double transfers i feel and it's, it's a good i think it's a good experience also for helping to understand others as well because like i have so much more sympathy for non-native english speakers dealing yeah. with life in north america than i would have if i didn't have this experience because i've been there i know exactly what they're dealing with whereas other mm. people who've never learned another language you know they're they're often the kind of people who they just they they can't get outside of what they take for granted so there's someone dealing with something and they're really struggling and it's just kind of like oh god you know like that person is yeah. you know not doing this well whereas like i've been that person so i know exactly what it's like to you totally. know you know like my my kind of uh joke or well not joke but like observation that i that i often make is that you know in north america especially when i was a kid you know, uh, people would often make fun of like Jackie Chan's English because he's his English is not like perfectly fluent. Right. But if you watch interviews with him, he can carry on like a surprisingly deep conversation with oh, people in guy. English. He's on a For talk sure. show and stuff. And it's just sort of like, like, yeah, that's hard, you know, like uh, to get to that level in like Mandarin or I, I think um, or like Cantonese in, in, in Jackie Chan's case would be really difficult to do. You know, so like we, we should give we should give Jackie right. Chan you know, the, the benefit of the doubt there that like, 
you know, yeah, he, you know, you know how hard it is to just sit on like a couch with a talk show host and a live thing and carry on a live conversation, which is, yeah. you know, not just sort of like, what, sorry, what <laughs> the whole time uh, that's, yeah, that's difficult. Yeah, yeah. And so I feel like I've come to appreciate that more. Um, but at the same time, I think also, you know, from the reverse end, just sort of embracing looking foolish like that or embracing the fact that, you know, people are going to think that about you. They are going to be like, okay, yeah, you said that wrong. You're not doing this right. And I think it's just more fun that way than if you, if you require yourself to sort of appear exactly as you appear in your um, native language. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what, I guess it, because English is just such a core part of the culture and it's, I guess it's like the, the language mm-hmm. that, you know, we, communicate universally around but i remember like yeah you bring up a good point like jackie chan speaking like pretty much like fluent english in like a talk show (laughs) where anything could go wrong right you're not even just a script this is like off the cuff open-ended questions and i remember like i think mark zuckerberg went to china and he did this like one minute presentation (laughs) in mandarin and everybody was going fucking crazy (laughs) like there was a standing ovation like new york times had like a headlines about it But like we just ignore this fact that like Jackie Chan can speak yeah. English, you know? Like yeah, Jackie, no Chan's, Jackie Chan's English there. is almost certainly better than Mark Zuckerberg's Chinese. No, I I haven't seen Absolutely. how Mark Zuckerberg's doing lately, so I mean I can't really. That's also I also don't want to get into that. Like that's also another um, I think bad habit. I think especially people who like learning languages get into is just this constant like oh so and so is whatever isn't very good or like this kind of you know constant like measuring contest of like who's the best and this kind of thing and i'm very willing to admit that like i'm mediocre probably in all the languages that i speak and so i think that it's it's very much um i think having that kind of idea of like oh so and so is the best or so and so is this is also you know yeah if you need it for your job that's fine but to me that's totally not the point right it, it the point is to communicate to expand your boundaries to in, enjoy like the cultural immersion and um certainly i have respect for people who are much better than i am you know like i i know yeah. lots of people that are much better and i admire them but i think there is often this kind of like you know, we probably should pat pat Mark Zuckerberg on the back for learning Chinese, even if it's you know sure. not like scintillatingly fluent, because um, most people never do, right? So like it right, is, it's right. something worth praising. And and but at the same token, you know, we should we should think you know, yeah, Jackie Chan does a pretty good job. You know, like you, you yeah. can't be you can't be too harsh on him. And and I think again, especially if you haven't ever, you know, like if I were on some Chinese talk show, I'd be sweating, you know, like, and I had spent a lot of time practicing Chinese and I don't think it's that bad, but it's hard, you know, it's hard to do that. And so I think um, praising people for whenever they make attempts to bridge that cultural and linguistic gap, I think is, is worthwhile. Well, <laughs> either way, I, uh, what I was going to jump into yeah. was, um, was actually ask if this year without English, was this before the MIT challenge? It was after. It was after. Okay, so you did something similar. Okay, so you did something before. So, Mm -hmm. what is the MIT challenge that you did for people that? Yeah. uh, Okay. Sure. So this uh, this was right after I graduated from university. I um, I was thinking about going back to school to study computer science, but I already had a degree. I I studied business, and um, it didn't really seem. I don't really like, didn't really want to get two undergrads. Like it didn't seem like really. mm, I don't want to go back for another four years. Just I don't know. And uh, around that time, I found that MIT actually has a lot of their classes 
online for free. So you go on there, they have like recorded lectures, um, homework assignments with solutions, final exams, solutions. You know, they don't always have everything, but there's a surprising amount of material up there. And this was before like MOOCs. So like Coursera didn't exist. Like, you know, this was, and so I was like blown away that, oh, like, well, I could just take an MIT class. Like I like you know yeah. what I mean? Like I already have a degree, so it's not even like I really need the other degree. And um, I did one of these classes. I think it was sort of the tail end of my um, business uh, school experience. And I, I found it really good and I really liked it. And so I was thinking to myself, you know, has anyone ever tried to like, you know, do something that's like a degree. So like you, you figure out what classes an MIT student would take. And then you try to take like those classes. And initially my idea was, well, I want to simplify it. Cause you know, trying to meet every single like examination requirement, So you have like essays and building a building the robot and stuff. Like, obviously those weren't going to work for me. So I just thought, well, like, could you actually just pass the final exams? Mm. As, uh, and especially for MIT, I know sometimes people think, oh, well, like, the, you know, some, some classes, the exams are a little bit of a joke and the homework is where all the like work gets done. But my experience from MIT is like the exams were really tough and they often have like novel problems. Like you, you can't not understand the material and pass an MIT exam. Like yeah, it's just yeah, not yeah. possible. <laughs> and so I, uh, I thought, you know, that was a pretty good benchmark. And um, I had been the whole, my whole career sort of at university, I'd been blogging and writing about studying skills. And, and, you know, so the idea of like optimizing learning and, you know, taking on challenges was also very much in my writing and, and thinking at that time. And so I thought, well, if you are already doing this kind of simplification where you're focusing on the final exams, could you do it in like an accelerated time frame? And so this was sort of the idea of this challenge is like, I wanted to try to do it in a year. So at 12 months, there's 33 classes. I did one in preparation. So I had 32 over the 12 month period of time. And uh, right before I started, I just sort of added the programming projects, um, which it was only, I think in eight classes. So it's not nearly as much as it sounds, uh, okay. but also the MIT program is like a, they're trying to give you this sort of science well-roundedness. So I did lots of like non-computer science classes. Like I did like four economics classes is physics, chemistry, biology, lots of math classes and stuff. So there was, there's wow. a big diversity there. And yeah, I did that over a year and uh, it was, it was a lot of work, but I finished it uh, just under the 12 month mark. So that was sort of my big first project. And probably the thing that, you know, um, it is, it is probably going to be my claim to fame now, because that's the thing most people know me from. Um, yeah after well, that's that was a big man. project I did and yeah and it got me attention and so the year without English project was kind of in the aftermath of that that was sort of like you know I was feeling especially plucky and like kind of like yeah uh -huh. you know I can take on big year-long projects and have yeah, them work yeah. out. so let's let's try this um and so the, the yeah the, the MIT challenge was the first project I did and that was about 10 years ago now because it was that's I started crazy. it yeah, exactly. 10 years now. Cause I started it in October of 2011. So and that was right after you graduated. So I graduated in, um, in the spring. So I had like from April to, um, April till October, I was just sort of prepping and, you know, getting ready and stuff. But like, why? Like I, I it's just like, well, your friends just kind of like, like, why, why are you doing this? Because I guess a lot of your friends were probably now getting jobs, especially after college, like being broke for so long, they're probably just now yeah. trying to make some money now, but 
you couldn't do anything else, I would imagine, while you were doing this for. Um, well, so I was very lucky because uh, I'd been writing for like uh, five years, I think, prior mm. to to having this. And so kind of in like my second to last year of university was when I was kind of like earning sustainable income from my website and business. So I wasn't under financial pressure. Um, I wasn't rich, but I was like, you know, I had been, I, there was a period of time uh, where I had been making very little money and it was like very much the kind of like, you know, should I pay for this bus fare or like walk? <laughs> Cause it's, you know, I could save that money for something else like that level of like student poverty. Um, and so I was, you know, from that recent experience, I was like flush with cash is like, Oh yeah, I'm making, you know, like a livable income. Yeah. And uh, so for me, it was, uh, there was some worry about like, how do I sustain that over the year? But it was not a really, really big problem at the time. Like I, I was just kind of like, well, I'll just keep doing the blog. And I was also documenting the project and stuff. And so, uh, and in retrospect, it was like a, a very savvy move from that perspective. I wasn't really thinking of it as like, oh, this is going to be launch my career, but it, it kind of did. And like, because I was already sort of in this student advice space, doing this project, like got me more attention and stuff than anything else. So it yeah. ended up uh, boosting the kind of career path that I was already on in a, in a, in a very strong way. And I think also uh, the year without English kind of helped in that regard as well. But I think it also set me apart because I, I was always really interested in learning. I was interested in doing these things. And I was in a point in my life where I didn't have a lot of like time to, you know, get down to brass tacks and get a real job kind of pressure. Um, yeah. And so I think that also enabled me to do it in a way that, you know, if, if I had had $30,000 in student debt and I had been like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm broke and I like, I'm going to have to take out more debt to do this, then I, I don't know whether I would have done it, you know? Um, but at the same time, I think it's one of those things that like, after I finished it, uh, I got like, people were giving me like job offers and stuff and like, come work wow. with us and kind of do this thing in computer science. And I was at that point, like making, you know, sort of in the aftermath of that project, I was making like good money as a writer. And I was like, well, I'm doing what I've always wanted to do, which is write for a living. Yeah. And so, uh, I, I was turning them down, but in some ways it's kind of like, um, it, it's not the, it's not the like poetic end to the challenge because that would have been to like, you know, work as a programmer and like apply it. And instead I decided to become a writer. So I think it's uh, you know, life has lots of interesting uh, twists and turns, but that sort of assumption that this was just a frivolous kind of project, I don't think was really borne out by my experience. I think, mm -hmm. you know, the, the obvious question is like, could you actually stick to something like this and pull it off and execute it, which I think it, that would be the major difficulty. But assuming you could do the same kind of thing where you are taking all these classes and learning to program and learning all these skills, I think the idea that there, there wouldn't be an economic opportunity after that is, yeah. is I think, pretty unlikely. Um, I think the thing most people would struggle with is just how do you stick to a self-initiated project like this for a year? Like, how do you study for... 50 hours a week, 60 hours that a is week crazy. when it's just on your own schedule. Like that, that I think would have been the challenge, but you know, I think I'm weird in that way that I actually just like really liked the material and you know, it was, I was already used to studying and stuff. So I was kind of already in that frame of mind. Sure. Yeah. And I want to get into that in, in terms yeah. of like the, the process of how you got there, but I think you're such a good example of someone that wasn't really looking at the economics perspective and like, 
and, and taking the traditional path. I mean, you weren't even going into the world of like, what did you study in university business. before yeah. business? Right. So like business. programming is just completely shot. And then people are like are dying to get, you know, jobs and like, especially in this competitor market, but you were just experimenting and you were just putting yourself out yeah. there and differentiating yourself in the market. And you just ended up getting job offers, right? Well, I mean, my project is unusual. And I, I like, I don't think, I don't think doing what I did would be necessary. Like if you were just, I want to work professionally in programming, um, some kind of bootcamp type approach is, is probably the best, like, it, mm-hmm. like fastest. I mean, like you could also get a computer in a computer science degree as well. But I just mean to say that like, in terms of self-study, the MIT curriculum is like, much more heavy on theory and complex computer science concepts, which are really cool. Like that's, that's part of the reason I liked it, but I yeah. mean, they're not really super applicable to your like entry level, you know, database programmer gig. Right. right? right it's like, right. you know, one of the classes was like theories of computation, which is like analyzing like, uh, you know, strings in terms of like what kinds of machines could make these sort of patterns and stuff. And so like, I mean, that's not like, that's not even going to be something that you're going to need, even if your job was to do like sentence parsing, you know, like even if you were in like text mining and that kind of space, you're probably not going to be using that. It's a, just an abstract kind of idea. Now I really like those ideas. And I think they, a lot of the benefit of intellectual ideas is that they help you think about other intellectual ideas. So kind of ironically, I feel like I use what I learned in the MIT challenge more for understanding cognitive science than for actual Mm -hmm. programming. Cause I don't do that much programming these days, like sometimes for fun, but I don't do it for work. Um, Yeah. Uh, you know, I just don't have a lot of time and I have uh, the ability to hire people who can do, uh, you know, work on the back end of the website while I write the articles. Um, But the, so I think there is a benefit for that kind of education. And I think if you are interested in it, you should pursue it. Um, But at the same time, I think like, again, if I were to sort of go back and sort of be like, okay, well, I need to get a programming job in like three to four months. I would like pick a language that people are hiring for and get really good at it, you know, which is doing a lot of hands-on projects and knowing the ins and outs and then just going somewhere and being like, you know, Mm. uh, like whatever it is that they're using JavaScript or PHP or Python or whatever, and just be like, I know this and I can do this. And these are the projects I've done, hire me. And then once you work your way in, you can work your way up. And that would be the more like direct uh, successful approach if you wanted to become a professional programmer. But if you're kind of like I was where you're like, I kind of wish I studied this in school, but I didn't, and I don't really want to pay a lot of money. Then I think taking online classes is, is great. Sure. Yeah. Now for someone that's learning a new skill brand from scratch, where, for example, like, let's say I want to get a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in the next five to seven years. Nice. Never done martial arts, nothing like that. What would you walk through? Like, how would you coach someone like myself to think about the strategic ways that would allow me to succeed in the long term? And what are some of the things that you would put in place so that I can actually like that would have the highest chance of me succeeding? Right. So, I mean, the place I always start is how do successful people learn this skill? Because there's lots of little ins and outs. Like you want to know what kind of resources you should be using, 
um, for like a physical skill like this, uh, you know, how important is it that you study with the right people? You know, like that could be something where like you go, you talk to other black belts and they're like, oh no, like there's huge range and quality of the dojo or whatever you're working with. And there's going to be people who really don't know what they're doing and they're spending a lot of time training you the wrong way. Um, or it could be also just that there's, okay, well, there's all these different varieties and you have to kind of choose what you want to focus on. And so I think understanding how the skill is, uh, like the map of the skill, I think is the first part, like sort of, you don't have it yourself, but you know how it's broken down. Um, I'm not going to be that helpful with uh, jujitsu because I've never done a martial art before, but I think the, the, the where I would start is talking with them, but you know, like learning a language is the same thing that you, you start by, um, okay, well, how does this language work? What are going to be the difficulties? Um, you learn some of the basics, uh, so, you know, if you're learning Mandarin Chinese, you understand, okay, well, they've got these characters, the characters tend to be one syllable, there's lots of characters that have the same pronunciation, most characters have only one pronunciation, maybe there's two, that, that works into the language, most of the words are two characters. So there's all these like kind of facts you build up about how Chinese works that is not actually speaking Chinese, but it's just, a, a, and you don't want to necessarily go too, too, too deep into this. Cause you want to actually start doing it and, and getting some practice. But the idea is that like, if you have a better map of, okay, this is how it works. Then when you finally start bearing down on the problem and being like, okay, now I'm pouring in hundreds of hours, you know, that, okay, this is actually going toward the destination. And Got so, it. so I feel like, uh, you know, at a really abstract level, you know, that a language is going to be like speaking, listening, writing, reading, you know, that, okay, the speaking problems, what am I going to have? I'm going to have, like, I have to master this pronunciation. How does this pronunciation work? What are the special sounds that I have to be able to make that I, you know, so you start, you start working out, mapping it out, and then you can figure out, okay, well, what would be, what would I actually have to be able to know and do and understand to be good at this? And so in the, in the book, ultra learning, I talk about kind of this threefold breakdown of skills into uh, procedures, concepts, and facts. So facts are things you just have to know. Uh, Concepts are things you have to understand. And procedures are things you have to be able to do. And you you don't always have the full picture, but you can kind of get a sense of, ah, this is what the real crux of the difficulty is. So in languages, one of them, I don't want to say it's the only one, but one of the major ones is Uh, you need to learn a lot of vocabulary to be able to have conversations on reasonable topics, usually at least a few thousand words to be able to, to even just kind of survive basic conversations and to get to any reasonable level of fluency. We're dealing with tens, maybe even hundreds of thousands of words. I I tend to find that my, my belief is that when they make, you know, this is how many words the average person knows those to me seem to be undercounts because they ignore how many proper nouns and, you know, idiosyncratic words you actually know in a things. And so somewhere there is something like a thousand most common words in Spanish gives you like 88% oral comprehension or something like that. But I mean, there are a lot of like the, a lot of the most common ones are also things like, you know, prepositions and like, you know, they're not they're not substantial words you know what i mean so you like you yeah. do need to have a and and the the actual nouns and verbs you need to learn are often i don't want to say that they're all going to be idiosyncratic but like you you learn things based on your situation so for instance when i was doing this project with that we were doing a lot of filming and so we learned the word for record really early like to record right. video because we would want to like say that to each other okay <laughs> can you record this right now 
Whereas for most people learning record, you don't need to learn that at all. And similarly, there's lots of also words that are, they seem kind of abstract or difficult that we learned really early. And then there's like uh, maybe really kind of basic uh, object nouns that we don't know. You know, they always like to start you with like names for animals and stuff like that. And it's actually like, you don't really need to know what the word for sheep is most of the time. Right. Yeah. Most of the time you don't like, I guess at a restaurant, you'd want to know if you're ordering mutton, but like, still it's, it's not <laughs> super important, but you know, as I said, like one of the first things we learned is like, I have a project to learn this language. You know, that was something. So project was a word that you have to learn, which is a kind of an mm-hmm. abstract noun. So, so again, the, the point here is not really to say that you're going to know exactly which words you need to learn in, in exact order and all this kind of thing, but just you're sizing up the challenge and you're going to be like, okay, being able to memorize the words is going to be a kind of bottleneck for this process. If I can get good at that, then I can go faster. And so then you invest in things like mnemonics or space repetition systems, or, you know, little ways of like, okay, I'm going to write down the new words that I learned and, you know, rehearse them a few times because just having the conversations, it's just going to go in one ear and out the other. Um, And so that, that is sort of one thing to do. And so if you're doing jujitsu, there's not gonna be a lot of memorization, but there's going to be a lot of procedural skills, right? So it's good to sort of work on procedural skills. How do you kind of get a a grip on things? How do you get a, you know, work on some of them? So I don't know, but my guess is that there's probably a few basic moves and patterns that really need to be mastered. And your success is not going to be this huge library of 40,000 elaborate holds and takedowns, but that you're like really good at like some of the basic ones. And so you practice those a lot. So, so this kind of mapping out of the skill and figuring out what it is that you actually have to get good at is super important um, to the extent that you're able to, I mean, every time you approach a new subject, you're making guesses, you make hypothesis that, ah, well, this is how this skill is going to work. And then you do it for a while. And maybe you realize you're wrong. So one of my examples of that is I did this portrait drawing challenge. And my idea was that the reason people are really good at drawing accurate portraits is just sheer rote repetition and practice of like getting all the errors out so you can do it. So I'm like, my, my model was like those caricaturists on the street who can just do an accurate face in two minutes. And what I learned from that is that actually that ability is not so much of a, just a perceptual, like I just see your face and I can just draw it. But noticing certain relations, noticing certain shapes and angles and stuff. So there's a bit of a method to it. And so I actually shift gears in the middle of the project from just doing lots of bulk practice to, okay, how do I hone the method? How do I hone, like, what are the actual, I start with this and I start by noticing this relation with this. And so then I can kind of size things up. And so you might find that when you start learning a skill that you think, you know, oh, the physics is all about memorizing the equations. And then you realize, no, it's not really about that at all. It's all about like, can you, can you form a kind of uh, a mental picture of what the actual thing is being called for? And then can you do like the algebra and stuff to execute on it? But just throwing random equations at the problem until you get the right answer is like a really bad way to do physics. And so, so you do have to kind of feel these things out. You make a hypothesis about what is it going to be that I'm actually getting good at? What are the procedures, facts, concepts that I'm going to have to master? And then you sort of build out from there and you, you kind of have to like have this sort of dialogue between trying to understand what the, what the map is as well as actually yeah. like kind of making progress in your journey. <laughs> that makes sense. So that's like the foundation you're, you're kind of picking out the, I guess it's kind of like the, the, 
the, the Pareto's principle of like what you think is the most important for, you know, the low hanging fruit, the least amount of effort. And you're setting that foundation from yeah. day one, which totally makes sense. I guess or that more like the to- opposite, more like the way I think of it is uh, what is the, what is the essential difficulty in this? Like, why is this hard? And that's the, that's what I like to look at is not what is the easiest way that I can get a result, but what is the thing that makes this difficult? Like, what is the thing that makes Chinese difficult or Brazilian mm. jiu-jitsu difficult? And if you can really identify that, then that's where you can drill down and focus your effort. It's harder if you just, if you miss that, if you miss what really makes it difficult, what is the thing that people struggle with? Because then you end up, you end up kind of skirting around that difficulty and you never really get to it. So I would say one of the major difficulties of learning a language is being able to fluently recall words in a, in a, in a sentence like rhythm that the, the reason I don't like Duolingo is that I don't think it does enough recall that you get these little tasks that are kind, mostly recognition tasks that you, you, Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I recognize that that word matches this other one that's in the word bank. That's two inches below it. But right. the real difficulty is, okay, I have some English concept that I need to express in this other language. And I need to not only recall the word, but I need to recall it fast enough so that when I string it together with seven other words in the sentence, that it sounds fluent. That's the difficulty. And so, so that gives a different perspective on it. uh, I think uh, than if you were to just, you know, okay, well, I'm going to like look over these words or something like that. You know, you, you, uh, what I have to be able to do is from memory, pull this word up. And, and as you, as you work on that, you get better and better at it. And so Mm. I think figuring out what the central difficulty of a new skill is, is, is very important. Um, Often because you're, as I said, you're wrong. You make an, uh, an, uh, an educated guess as to uh, the difficulty is this, but then you get into, you, you sort of butt heads against the subject because you've, you've guessed the difficulty wrong. You're thinking that I have to be really good at this, but you actually have to be really good at something else. So the portrait drawing was an example of that, that, um, Often it's, it's having these kinds of being able to notice certain relations that allow you to draw something accurately um, as opposed to just sort of brute force. I just done Mm. it so many times that I just, you know, even people who are caricaturists or, or, or they draw um, like portraits on the street in five minutes. um, What they've mastered is they have a really, really, really good automatic drawing of the default of what someone's face looks like. So they will draw a human face really, really well. And then it's quickly noticing how does your face differ from the normal human face. And so like your, your eyes are here versus here versus here. And you quickly look at that and then you just make adjustments to that basic portrait. And so you frequently see that when people are doing that, they kind of start with a more generic face and then they're, then they're kind of shifting from the details. Mm. Um, and so, so recognizing that that's what they're good at, right? Um, it, yeah. And that's hard. I think it's difficult to, to know that even as a skilled practitioner to know what it is that you're good at because often you just do it for a long time and you, you just get better at it. Um, try yeah. to explain swimming to someone who's never swam before once you've done it for a while. It's very hard to like articulate, okay, this is what I'm actually doing with my hands and stuff. But I think um, the more you can have that dialogue between what am I doing? What am I trying to do? What is the, what is the thing that I'm actually trying to get good at here? Um, that helps you form questions because once you sort of, as I said, okay, well, I need to master more vocabulary. Well, then there's lots of ways you can work on improving your vocabulary, or um, I need to work on my pronunciation, or I need to work on my grammar or, or whatever. You can work on that. Um, but the, the challenge is just often that 
you know, people don't really know what they should be working on or they don't, they don't really understand what the central difficulty is. And so they get kind of stuck. Yeah. Yeah. And particularly if I mean, we've all learned some, we all have some skills, right? Whether it's tying your shoes, mm-hmm. like there's skill sets that you've learned just from your childhood. And I guess the idea is that not to falsely believe that all of these skills that you've learned before are immediately going to transfer to this new skill that you're going to be learning. So like brute force may work for starting your business or whatever it might be, or other skills that just require, you know, just putting in the effort, but something like drawing may be a completely different skill set. And that might not be the foundation that you need to build your skill set on. So it's like yeah. unlearning almost what you may have. Cause I think you have an article around like this idea of unlearning and how important that is for particularly skill set training. Yeah, I think, well, so yeah, there is a sort of idea of learning as just kind of that like your mind is a jar and that you're just like filling it up with like facts and stuff. Like you're just putting stuff in it. But often what learning is, is it's a, it's, it's making new discriminations and uh, adjusting what those discriminations are. So you're, you're looking at a situation and being like, this situation calls for this. Right. And that's, that is, that is kind of what you're doing. And so for a lot of situations, you already have some way of thinking about them. And what you're trying to do is think about them a different way. And so that's what's difficult is that in for many, uh, many subjects, we have strongly ingrained kind of prior ways of thinking about things that make it very hard to do the subject properly. So the classic example of this is like physics, where, uh, you know, all human beings are essentially like Aristotelian physicists in that you believe that when uh, you know, you, you push something, it will tend to slowly lose momentum over time. Whereas like Newton tells us an object in motion tends to stay in motion. Um, people believe that if you, you know, swing a ball around on a curved trajectory and like, let it go, it will continue to curve and like eventually kind of straighten out, but that's not how it happens at all. It like is straight, dead straight from the moment it leaves your hand. So like, these are all things that you have strong physical intuitions. And part of that is because, well, you know, we live in a, an environment where there's an atmosphere and it's, there's friction. And so there's all these sort of like things that complicate the Newtonian picture. But if you're trying to like study physics, that's one of the difficulties is that you have to kind of unlearn sort of your wrong ideas about how objects move. And, and the yeah. same thing is true of, I think, like economics. People have all sorts of economics and psychology. People have all sorts of like folk intuitions about how minds and economies work. And then they get to their sure. class and they project those onto the theories. And, and, and so they're not able to actually just reason. This is what the theory says, because they're, they're kind of cribbing off of their answer of what they think it should be. So I think unlearning is true for a lot of um, areas, where, especially when you, especially when you've been doing something for a while and you're trying to get better at it, because if you're trying to get better at it, then you know, by, by default, you're trying to not do what you would normally do. Right. And that, that right. can be very hard. It can be very hard to suppress the sort of, ah, oh, well, this is how you do this problem. <laughs> yeah. Like I remember like Tiger Woods had to like, at the top of his game, he got a lot of criticism because he changed the entire process of how he was doing his swings. Mm. And I guess he was like this, like 99% level, but he wanted to get to, you know, that, he wanted to really optimize for those extra percentages and like to the normal person, they can't even imagine getting to that 99%, but you have to continue to unlearn in order to, you know, 
put those neurons together and yeah, it's, well, this uh, is related to this idea of deliberate practice uh, by Anders Ericsson, which is just sort of the idea that, you know, we, we quickly plateau at skills we use regularly. Um, and that's often because we get this level of adequacy, you know, and yeah. because you're at a level of adequacy, you, you, you're not pushed to really do things better. And I think that's true for lots of skills um, and, and areas where there's definitely some areas that are a little bit more accumulative, um, like in a language, for instance, I would say pronunciation is more unlearning and vocabulary is more kind of this accumulative process because there's lots of words that you know it in English and you, I just don't know what it is in that language, right? Mm -hmm. um, but uh, pronunciation can be one of those things that if you learn it slightly wrong, uh, you have so many repetitions of you saying it like the wrong T or the wrong R or something that gives you an accent. And so I think that's one of the reasons why it's very difficult as an adult to learn an, a language without any accent um, is just because of that, that like you kind of fall into saying something that's closer to how you'd say it in your native language. And just right. through sheer repetition, it's very difficult to break out of that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people like praise the skills that we have acquired, like language learning, but it's like what's underrated is the skill set of learning how to learn, which is really what your entire book is around. Because like the things that you were just talking about, like the pinpointing about unlearning pronunciation, but um, but for other aspects, they may, it may not work. Like people just don't think that way. I feel they don't have that intuition and they just kind of use their previous successes of what they've learned. And they just try to kind of like brute force into using whatever's worked for mm -hmm. them into other things. And then they just kind of run into circles, right? Well, I, I will say this, like, I, I obviously like learning and I like the abstract idea of learning. And I think that um, this is, you know, there's a lot of, I think, fairly basic ideas from cognitive science that are underappreciated. So we could talk about transfer, we could talk about retrieval, like there's, you know, using feedback, these are all things that I think are, um, they don't take a long time to learn and they change how you think about stuff. But at the same time, I sometimes, I will sometimes encounter people who will say to me something like, well, I was thinking about learning X, but I realized what I really need to learn is how to learn first. And I'm going to do this big project of learning how to learn. And uh, then I'm going to get working on this. And I kind of feel like that's backwards. Yes. Read my book. I, I highly recommend <laughs> reading my book, but yes, like read yes. my book, read other books that are about learning, but do them in the context of something you actually want to learn. Like do the thing that you want to learn. Right. Because um, otherwise these ideas, they float ungrounded from anything. Right. Mm. They're not like when I talk about retrieval, when retrieval really makes sense or the space repetitions and stuff is when you are engaged in learning neuroscience or, medicine or law or languages where you need to memorize things and you are struggling with it. That yeah. is going to help you see how the principle works, what its limitations are, all the little like rough edges that the theory um, can't provide. And so I, I hope what my book does for people is that I hope it gives them um, some of the kind of tools that I've acquired and some of like things that I have picked up over the years and I hope more than anything, it gives them some inspiration to start a project. But I think that it's the actually going out there, doing things, learning things like that is how you build this kind of meta learning apparatus where you can look at a subject and be like, all right, I'd probably do something like this and this to learn that, you know, you, sure. you build that out through actually doing things. So if there's any takeaway from my book or, or my talk is 
figure out what the thing that you've kind of been daunted by or wanted to learn, go into that, learn it. And of course, you know, take steps back and, you know, try to see it through fresh eyes, this kind of thing. But I think this idea that you can like learn how to learn um, independent of any actual learning, I think is probably false. Um, I think you actually have to go out, challenge yourself, take on projects, do things that you think are hard. And that will be the grist for the, you know, learning how to learn uh, ability. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think like, so uh, the the last part about uh, the question that I had around is, is actually sticking to the skills that you're developing. Cause I think this is probably the hardest part for most people. Um, You have this post around like minimum, average, maximum, can you go into that oh, okay. a little bit and, and how sure. that can relate to helping me yeah. to stick around that? Well, that was more a kind of, so th- this essay you're talking about um, was something I wrote uh, a while ago and it was sort of discussing how you can see in a lot of um, approaches related to learning or self-improvement that have one of three flavors that um, it's about, there's this sort of, your, your focus is on hitting a particular minimum And so this is the kind of atomic habits, tiny habit sort of approach, which is the idea that like, if I could focus on doing a 10 minute workout every single day, I'm going to actually exercise a lot more than if I focus on having just the perfect workout every single time I work out. Right. Because Mm -hmm. in this context, showing up to the gym every day is going to matter way more than like the number of perfect workouts you have. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can talk about in, uh, a sort of an average benchmark where the idea is like getting your total volume in. So this could be like, I want to hit this many hours per week of some other project. This is very much like, you know, some days are bigger, some days are lower. You're trying to hit the average. And then there is a sort of maximum performance where you're trying to hit like a personal best or a record. And it's this sort of pinnacle of achievement that you're trying to get to rather than any kind of accumulation. And I think, each of these things have different areas where these strategies tend to work. So like, I would argue that at least in my case, uh, I see writing books as more the latter than the former. I don't think Mm. if I were writing a book every month, that would be great for my career as an author compared to when I write a book, I couldn't have done it better personally than I did. You know, like I, I didn't have anything left in me to do it because book sales are on a power curve and this kind of thing. And so having one really, really successful book is much, much better than hundreds of shitty books. Um, But that's probably not true for running (laughs) that trying to get your personal best for running. I mean, if you're, if that's important to you, that's fine. But I just mean to say like from a physical fitness point of view, the person who runs every day is in better shape than the person who like, you know, I am just sort of meditating on doing this one, one race and that's it. Right. Um, and, and so I, I think, you know, my point in that essay was just to point out that this is a kind of at an abstract level, a way you can think about your strategies is, okay, what am I actually trying to do here? Am I trying to hit the average? Am I trying to hit a minimum? Am I trying to hit a maximum uh, with, with this goal, with this project I'm pursuing? So I think, uh, you know, with, language learning, I've tended to be more of the average hit. So when I would go on these projects, it would be much more like, okay, how many hours am I putting in of like, you know, 
practice that I would say qualifies as good practice. Um, you know, you could also argue that the whole no English rule tends towards a certain maximalism that you're like, okay, I'm going as much as I possibly can. Obviously this is unsustainable long-term. I'm not planning yeah. on only speaking Mandarin for the rest of my life, but the idea is that it'll, I'll get over this threshold and start doing it. So I, I don't think, you know, there are some people that tend to argue that like one of these approaches is generally best. So I know some people that take the minimal, like, okay, it's all about habits and that's the only way to achieve things. Um, and I think that's a little bit too narrow-minded. I think that, you know, reality in life is complicated. So sometimes that will be the approach. Sometimes it won't be, but I think if you can keep this, uh, concept in mind that like, Oh, there's yeah. this aspect to your strategy, then you can self-consciously explain what you're doing and whether it makes sense. So, you know, if your idea is, okay, I'm trying to do the minimum here. How can I engineer my minimum so that I'm actually hitting it very, very, very consistently to sort of don't break the chain. So that in some ways is incompatible with, okay, I got to make sure I hit this heartbeat and I got to do it for an hour and I got to do all these other things. You know, you're maybe not going to be consistent with that. So I think that's one of the things to look at when you're, when you're working on stuff. Right. It seems like these like mid to long-term goals that you have would fit under the maximum category more, like particularly trying to learn, you know, multiple languages in one year or trying to write a book. Uh, but the process of getting there, like the day-to-day -day, seems like it would be in the minimum and average. Would that, would that be right? Maybe. I think, um, again, for me, and I, I can't really speak to, you know, what, what's going to work for everyone, but I'll just say what works for me is that I have a sort of an obsessive personality. So like I can lock into a project and if I'm committed to it, I can really, really stick to it and I can go far with it. Um, and I think the, the downside of that is that you can't do very many projects like that, right? Like you, mm. you, you can only do one at a time realistically. Um, it, it takes a lot out of you. So you're, you're not even necessarily able to do them like just continuously like that. And I think the MIT challenge and year without English were definitely like an extreme in that phenomenon. And I think I picked them because they were extreme too. Like that makes them more interesting for other people. Um, mm -hmm. If I were just like never going to write or tell people that I did these things, would I have done them exactly that way? I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe I would have slowed them down a bit more and, you know, uh, balance mm -hmm. them with other goals. So I can't entirely separate the fact that I am this sort of semi-public figure who's doing these things <laughs> for an audience from yeah, the yeah. strategies I pick. But I think uh, the idea here is, is I think you want to look at the dynamics of what you're trying to achieve to see which strategy makes more sense rather than to say, oh, well, strategy A works better in every situation. It's what is the, you know, just like military tactics, right? Like you got to look at what the actual, like sometimes retreat is the right move. Sometimes it's to attack. So in the same way, look at the situation you're in. I would say if you're doing a startup, the minimum approach doesn't work. You have to reach a certain minimum scale and viability or you're dead. So yeah. you, you have, like, you kind of have to take this obsessive, I'm going all in and doing everything I can to make it approach. If you're going to do well, I'm going to work on my business for 10 minutes a day. Well, that's fine if you have no burn rate, but if you have employees and you have contractors and you've quit your job, then that doesn't make any sense at all. But yeah. I want to get in a better shape and I've got a million other things in my life that are mandatory that I can't not do then the like, I'm going to do, you know, 10 minutes of jumping jacks in my office every day, even though it's not the perfect workout is maybe a pretty good strategy. So I think you have to look at like, what's the context. And so for me, I think the habits approach, the minimum approach 
tends to work better when you're pursuing a goal that you know is important, that you don't need to be spectacular at, but you need to be good enough at, and that you need it to be something that like, uh, you also have to juggle a bunch of other things in the background, right? Um, and so yeah. I think that I think it works well for that. I think it can also work well if you have a strong aversion to getting started with things. So like, if you have to study for a big test and you know you need to put in the hours, but you're really not doing it, um, but you know once you get to the library you're going to actually start studying, then you can also think right. of it that way as well. So again, it's 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 really hard to make these super. Uh, general conclusions that like, this is a strategy that works best in all situations. But I think the more like, kind of like what we were talking about, the more you can shift your level of thinking up to this level of abstraction of like, okay, I've got this tough goal. I'm not sure whether I'm going to succeed at it. What are the different kinds of strategies I could approach this with? And then you can start to think about it in a more strategic level, as opposed to well, I'm just going to do it, meaning doing it the way you've always done it, or I'm going to do it kind of blindly where I'm just sort of, you know, someone told me this is the way to do it. So I'm going to do it this way, even though that doesn't make any sense given my goals. So I think you have to really think about it on different levels. And so I've experimented with lots of different ways that I can kind of track and monitor goals. But I think that it, uh, the key is that you have to have a strategy that makes sense but then also think about what are the strengths and weaknesses of the strategy. So as I said, the maximalist strategy tends to suffer from, you know, you're, you're frequently not going to hit your ideal. Uh, you're going to have to have a lot of deliberate effort and focus. Um, you're going to have to exclude other projects. But I mean, it tends to work when other strategies can't work. And similarly, mm-hmm. the habits approach, you, you can get more concurrency there. You can pursue more goals at the same time. Um, and it works well, I think, when, you know, there's usually that little threshold that you have to overcome to, to get started with it. So I think, right. you know, exercise works really well, probably works really well for kind of long-term goals. Like, okay, I want to write every day, or I want to um, do this other thing every day, meditate or something, you know, it probably works pretty well for that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that just like these common examples of what people are trying to accomplish uh, is probably like the best route to, to go. Cause as you mentioned, if it's super general, it's just, you just can't apply these things for, for everyone. So I think we try them out, you know, like you can make a theory that, okay, well, I think the way to getting in shape is going to be to have these small habits, but then maybe you find when you're doing it, that you're not actually following up on the later part of the habit. So you only go to the gym and you actually only go for 10 minutes and you come home. And maybe what you need to do is like find some sport or activity you can get like super into. And so like, maybe what Mm. you do need to do is like train for a triathlon or something, you know, like maybe that's what works for you. So I, I, again, I, I'm not here to really say that uh, there's some universal idea, but I think just, again, this is also true of the learning advice. The more you can um, think about, okay, well, I could approach it this way or this way or this way, you have some options. So if something doesn't work out, okay, that didn't work. Why didn't it work? Let's try something else. <laughs> you know? Right. No, totally understand. Uh, so my last question is we, we provide a small actionable challenge for the audience members okay. for them to, after listening to this episode, to take towards where, whatever skill they want to learn or goal mm-hmm. that they may have. Uh, but first off, I want me, I want to make sure people check out ultra learning uh, and make sure to check out your blog, scotchhyoung.com. Uh, it has probably one of the best blog posts that I've seen in terms of learning and breaking it down. Okay. Uh, so that was, uh, and you got a podcast now as well, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. I also have a podcast. You can listen to me. I've got some guests there. It's, but it's largely just me uh, sharing ideas. Yeah. Yeah. It's James, James clear and him talking about Yuval's yeah. books. <laughs> yeah, Half yeah, of the yeah. episodes are around uh, that. <laughs> yeah. no, no, those are, those are very, if you dig down, you guys scroll down, you can find some, uh, some book yeah. club uh, ones that I did uh, several years ago, but yeah. Got it. Got it. Cool. So yeah, one small actionable challenge. It could be something that takes one minute. It could be something that takes a whole day. Uh, just something that gets people to actually take action for the things that they, we talked about here today. Yeah. I mean, in terms of small actions, like obviously I would suggest uh, consider taking on a learning project. I mean, this is not necessarily a small action, but I think that picking something that you have always wanted to learn that you're interested about and taking some next steps to making a little project out of it would be very good. But if you want a really, really small one, I think one thing that we didn't even touch on, which I think is like super valuable is this idea of retrieval. But Mm. uh, if you, if you ever need to memorize something, so if you ever need to like have something stored in memory, practice remembering it this actually comes in handy in lots of places so like if you get a new credit card instead of just like if you're typing it in for like a purchase or something try flipping it down and seeing if you can remember it and then checking obviously if you get it right and it turns out you do this like four or five times and you'll memorize your credit card you memorize your passport you can memorize things like this you can also memorize uh like speeches and and stuff like that too so if you have to prepare for a speech just like you know put the cue card down, try to remember what you're going to say, say it, and then, then look at it. And uh, it works for tests, works for everything. So we didn't even get into retrieval. I feel weird giving this as the action on him, even though we didn't get to that. Uh, Is there a blog post area of the that, in, your, in your blog? Well, there's a chapter in, there's a chapter in my book. I'm sure I talk about recall uh, on, on my blog in various places, but there's a whole chapter of ultra learning where I, I talk about it. Okay. But cool. I think that's just an example of like, if you understand how learning systems work, you can very quickly make improvements over the just sort of the way, like most students just look at things to yeah. memorize them, which is terrible, terrible. <laughs> but, uh, but again, it's, even if you're not studying for tests, you can, you know, memorize numbers and things like that more easily. Than well, there you go. Yeah. yeah. You, can, you can get ultra learning to learn all that stuff that we just uh, <laughs> forgot to mention. Yeah. We didn't do that on purpose, right? Just to plug the book, yeah. by the way. No, 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 no. <laughs> just to let you know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> just so yeah. happened that way. But <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you, man. This is great. We, we definitely learned a lot okay. and um, yeah, we'd yeah, love to, fun. we'd love to have you back on sometime. All right, great. All right, thank you so much. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.